This is the Brazilian Beat. Join us as we get to know the Brazilian percussion music making community one interview at a time. This is Diana. And this is Courtney. Hello, everybody. Hello. Today on our show, we have Brad Boynton. He is the founder of Rhythm Traders Drum Shop in Portland, Oregon. He saw his passion for the drums develop as early as four years old and has always been a source of true happiness in his life. While studying anthropology in college, Brad traveled to Africa and lived with drum makers, which began his career path as an importer of those instruments. He started the store on the idea of a trader of small percussive products by largely unknown drum makers, but it soon grew into one of the largest retail drum shops in the United States. And he shared with us on this podcast some of his stories about that journey of, of traveling into all these different countries and getting to know people and living with um, drum makers and things. It's a really great interview, and I hope you guys enjoy it. How are you? Happy 4th of July weekend. I have Yay. four days off. So excited. Four? Four! I took Monday oh. off. Awesome. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited to be free. And tomorrow, actually we're not free because Courtney and I are going to play at a gig for Pink Martini. Well, with them, I guess. <laughs> right? I, I'm not even really sure what's happening. Yeah, we're going to be we're going to be playing there. They're going to be there. So that's kind of fun. Why else are we excited, Diana? Um, it's the 4th of July. We have Brad. <laughs> we have our friend Brad Boynton here on, on the line with us. Hi, Brad. Hey, how's it going, buddy? How's it going? If you are not familiar with Brad, Brad is the owner of Rhythm Traders, a very well-known drum and instrument shop here in Portland, Oregon. And uh, thanks for coming on, Brad. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. I'm excited. It's right off the I-5, so as you're passing through Portland, it's easy to get to on your way to uh, all the fun events in Seattle. That's right. Yeah, it's um, it's about 4,000 square feet of just drums. And sometimes people ask how I can survive just selling drums, but um, there actually are a lot of drummers out there. And um, there's all shapes and sizes of, of drums and drummers, too. So um, we try to carry the whole gamut. And you can find them at RhythmTraders.com, and you guys sell online as well, right? We do. Come on by. Either place. <laughs> They're closed right now, but yeah. but uh, as I see on, <laughs> on the web here. But uh, Brad has a ton of stories. He's had a lot of experiences, and um, we're glad to have him on and talk to him about all things drums and all things Portland and whatever else comes up. Sounds good. So Brad, yeah. Tell us about yourself. How did? Uh, where are you from? Where? Where did you start making music? Gotcha. Um, I mean, I've been a drummer for a long time. I, I started when I was probably eight and did it all through high school. And then even when I went to Lewis and Clark College, I um, uh, was kind of on a partial music scholarship. So uh, I was in the jazz bands and the concert bands and everything. Um, so interestingly enough, that was in the late '80s, and they had a teacher there 
who was kind of the grandfather of the African drumming scene in Portland, um, Oboe Addy, and a lot yes. of people know know him. Um, so the first time I ever saw him play, I just got my mind blown because he could get, you know, like five or ten different sounds from one drum, whereas I was used to playing, you know, ten drums to get one sound. Um, so my mind was blown, and uh, and so. I ended up taking his drumming course, um, and uh, you know, a lot of people sort of uh, who became um, drummers or hand drummers in the 80s and 90s um, came up through the ranks through Oboe Addy. Um, so yeah, uh, I'm a Portlander, went to Lewis and Clark, um, studied anthropology. So uh, you know, I was interested in music, but also in culture as well. Um, and so uh, Oboe was a terrific conduit for that, and then um, we can... We can get into it later, but um, I guess the, the quick story is uh, I graduated with my BA in anthropology um, and had written like a senior thesis on looking at popular West African music as a means for understanding like tension and problems and ur uh, urban rural tensions and, mm. um, you know, just values. Um, so I um, took all my savings and I moved to Ghana and I, I, wow. uh, I lived there for about a year. I, I lived with, um, with drum makers and nomads and a millet beer brewer and fortune tellers. And um, I <laughs> like, yeah, I was living in the bush. How old um, were you? Uh, I mean, I had just, just graduated. So I was like 22, 23, I suppose. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, and I mean, the reason I did that is because, you know, I thought, well, I would be remiss if I went and got a graduate degree in anthropology and I had never been to Africa or I didn't know if I liked field research or if I didn't like to eat with my hands or whatever. So, <laughs> um, so I went over there, you know, to, to sort of experience the world and then also to see if I identified with a particular ethnic group. Um, and then uh, long story short is after apprenticing with some drum makers for about three months and um, having um, a ceremony and pouring libations to the ancestors and, and sacrificing a chicken. Um, they presented me with my own tools. And instead of going um, to graduate school, I ended up starting a drum store called Rhythm Traders in Portland, Oregon in 1992. Wow. In a nutshell. <laughs> oh, that was just the intro. Yeah. I mean, there's specific <laughs> stories. So you just think, you know, but um but that is sort of how I um, how I was introduced to world percussion, and I mean that was at a time also when it was very new. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, cultures have been drumming for uh, thousands of years, but um, but you know, in the early '90s, people thought it was cool to go to London and Paris and you know Rome, and right. so um, and, and so uh, people were were just starting to to travel to like India and Dakar, Senegal, and they're going to uh, Rio and, and and other places. And so it's a time when Americans are sort of just kind of discovering the world, um, and then meeting uh, teachers and 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 master players that uh, eventually would come to the states and start teaching and stuff. And so um, yeah, the early '90s were kind of a confluence um, where. Uh, we were hungry for that. We were starting to, to, to travel more. Um, uh, schools like Lewis and Clark had study abroad programs. Um, I did mine to Eastern Europe, and that was, you know, back uh, behind the, the Iron Curtain uh, in, the, in, in the late 80s. But they also had trips to uh, West Africa and India and other places. And so now you had 
students traveling, um, you know, and then other people studying, let's say, Roomba and sneaking into Cuba. <laughs> and so all this was happening at a time when, like, um, there were a lot of events that sort of converged at the same time. So you had people traveling. You had um, the Grateful Dead was still active. And so people were like going to shows and um, uh, drumming in parking lots and listening to, you know, their drummers do their they, they would always play a, a tune called Space. And then there was another one called Drums. And it was just kind of a <laughs> spacey drum thing. But that was going on. Um, and then uh, even companies like Remo, you know, which had traditionally been a drum head company um, from their their origin, probably in the late 50s. Uh, Remo Belly himself became interested in world percussion and then drumming for health and happiness. And he was looking at the health benefits of drumming. And so he was one of the first, I mean, to start producing a line of synthetic drums. And he had djembes and ashikos and dunoons and talking drums and um, uh, uh, boogaraboos and, and tars and ricks and all these drums that like weren't really that popular yet. And a lot of them prior to that time were 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 kind of funky, like they might have had natural skins that popped and, and, and no one knew how to fix them or they had like... Um, uh, tuning lugs that were broken or rusted and so they were just harder to maintain and then all of a sudden uh, Remo comes around and starts developing these um, you know very uh, playable tunable durable synthetic drums and so that was happening also in the early 90s kind of at the same time and then you had like French things like um, the men's movement and so you know those guys would like go into the woods and bring their drums and and uh, and so all this is sort of happening at the same time and so you know, I was, uh, you know, in my early 20s and I was interested in the in in the world and interested in drumming and uh, wanted to learn more about drumming just beyond like um, what I had been exposed to growing up, which is just kind of the Western symphonic tradition and drum sets and, and you know, all that stuff. And, and so I wanted to learn more about uh, drumming for life cycle ceremonies in, in Africa and for, uh, you know, for funerals and weddings and naming ceremonies and wrestling matches and <laughs> uh, circumcision rituals and, and to induce trance in order to heal people. And so these are all things that interested me. And so when I, when, when I did go, go to Africa um, to start experiencing that, I sort of was hoping to find a particular region or a particular ethnic group or a particular line of inquiry that I eventually would go, you know, like to graduate school and keep on studying it and maybe write a book. So instead of uh, writing a book, I ended up selling a bunch of bongos. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Wow. <laughs> That's a lot of stuff. I did not know that about you, Brad. Okay, I'm going to take you back for a second. Can you please describe how you said you learned to make drums like i'm from scratch and scratch being like a tree can you describe how that process and like was it were you making djembe's or i mean what kind of drums were you making gotcha or something um they were pon logo drums and away drums so here's how it happened i i uh and i i know this is kind of odd maybe to some of your listeners but i was really trying to challenge myself and so I like literally took all my savings, moved over there, and I tried to basically set up a bunch of like mini internships for myself, mm. um, uh, just to experience field research. 
So I went to a, a woman who was a millet beer brewer and um, I would help her brew the beer and then we would take it to the market and sell it. And, uh, you know, it, uh, I was quite a, um, um, uh, uh, yeah, just quite a, uh, quite a scene, <laughs> I guess, because in villages, you know, they, um, I, it's not like I was there with a big tour group or anything and I was living with folks. So that was one thing I did. Um, then I, I met an oral historian in another region and uh, tried to learn the talking drum from a Dagomba master. And uh, that was interesting because they actually learned their oral history and they learn about all the wars and famines and chiefs uh, and, and history. And they, they can sing, sing, sing all of that before they even touch a drum. And so here was me in my 20s and I'm studying from this guy. And then he was apprenticing his youngest son at the same time. The son was like, you know, eight or 10. And so the son's there like singing and then he would be like, you know, talking about, um, you know, different chiefs. And then if he mixed up the the order of the chiefs, um, uh, our teacher would correct him. And and then it came time for me. Well, I didn't even speak to Gomba <laughs> was was one problem. And then their drums are sort of based on linguistic phrases. And so he would play a phrase that in his mind was simple and short. Uh, but because we learn differently and our, our drumming isn't based on linguistics, it's more just like, yeah, beats and pulses and, and we read music because we can't, we don't think of it in, in phrases and stuff. And so he would play a phrase for me to play back. And my intonation on the drum was just awful and everybody laughed and it was a great experience <laughs> for me. So I did that. Um, but let me flash forward to the drum making thing. So uh, I went to a village in the eastern region of Ghana, um, which is where they're making drums. And so they're Ashanti, um, uh, and, uh, but they, they, they make drums for the Awe and for the Ga and for other ethnic groups. Um, uh, they make drums for the University of Ghana and the Arts Council and, and um, some other institutions. So I went there and I, I went to, the, to the, the drum makers and I said, hey, um, I am really enjoying your, your your craft and your beautiful drums, and and I I would like to learn how to how to carve. And at first they got this totally bewildered look on their face, and they're like, "What do we have to teach you? I mean, you come from America, where you have big cars and big machines, and everything's automated, and you have robots, and like you you have all of that. So I mean, how come you're here?" And so I sort of told a little, um, I don't know, parable or, or, or um, story, I, I guess, because that's how a lot of Africans talk. And I said, yeah, we have terrific cars in Detroit. But the interesting thing is we have this assembly line process, which is, you know, very Western, very American. But I said, the guy who does the body work doesn't know how to install the windshield. And the guy who uh, builds the engine, you know, doesn't know... Um, how to upholster it. And I said, they're, they're really, you know, you have designers who design the car, but for all intents and purposes, you don't have one person who could build that car from start to finish. And that's what I admire about you guys here in Ghana is because you guys can carve a drum from start to finish and you understand and, and own that entire process from cutting down the tree to hollowing out the, the uh, wood, carving the drum, attaching the antelope skin and then even playing it. These guys know how to play drums too. And so I said, that's why I've come here is, is to learn the process because um, that's something we don't have in America. 
and they all nodded and they're like, wow, okay. I mean, that, 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 that makes sense. And then there was a material question. Um, so they started kind of talking and then they turned to me and said, well, Mr. Brad, we, uh, our, our, our workshop is here outside um, and we would like to listen to music while we work, but in fact, there's, there's no electricity in our village. So if you can bring us a truck battery to power our, our, our boom box, you got yourself a deal. So, <laughs> nice. so I went back to Accra, bought a used truck battery for about <laughs> 70 bucks. And then a week later showed up to this village with a loaf of bread, which is customary and a, a, a used truck battery. And I commenced my, um, my apprenticeship. And, uh, so I spent about three, uh, three months there and, um, it was the real deal. I mean, my teacher, you know, uh, they're responsible for um, the way that we learn and our health and our nourishment and our social relations. And so uh, he I, like he really took care of me as if I was one. And uh, so I, I, I stayed in his house and shared a room with his son. And um, some days uh, there wasn't enough business. And so we would go to the cassava farm and and, you know, harvest cassava or do whatever. And so I was just one of them. And, uh, and so literally, uh, uh, it was one of the best experiences in my life. Uh, and, and I did learn the, the process from, from start to finish. And in the process, I sort of learned something, um, about me that I hadn't really planned on. And I just looked at myself and I'm like, dude, you've been like living in a village for months. You're like, you know, carving drums. Yeah. You're, apparently well respected and having a great time and i'm like and the weird thing is i'm doing that without a phd behind my name so i'm actually doing what i always wanted to do but i'm already doing it mm. and so that was part of the realization for me like mm, you know maybe this is what i belong doing is hanging out with drum makers and artists and and you know master drummers and dancers and um you know learning myself and also facilitate learning and by uh, putting on workshops and things. And so it was a natural fit um, when they presented me with tools and they asked if I was going to carve drums in America. And I said, no, I, I, uh, I don't think I could support myself. And then they were dumbfounded and, and because uh, I think they felt maybe they had wasted uh, a few months of their time teaching mm -hmm. this American who now is not appreciative apparently of the experience. But I said, look, I, um, uh, labor is very expensive in America, and I'm not sure like if it takes me 40 hours to carve a drum, but I can only sell it for 199 bucks. I'm not sure that I could support myself, and they understood. So they actually, so this is still in about 1990 or 91, so it's before I started my store. Um, they asked if I would market their drums, and I said, you know, hey guys, I would love to, but I'm a kid. Uh, I'm broke. I have student loans. Um, I come from a family of teachers and social workers, and I don't really know much about marketing or business. In fact, I never took a single course. And so I just don't know if I'm the right guy to represent your goods and, um, you know, and market them. And so the, the, um, the drum makers all kind of huddled together and whispered and came up with the plan. And they literally blew my mind. They said, so we understand that. But if we don't try, we'll always wonder if we could have been successful. So we would like to send you 12 drums and we'll send them to you. And we, we, we hope that you're able to sell them. And if so, send half of the money back and we'll send you 12 more. 
And that's exactly how Rhythm Traders was born in 1992. Wow. So did you buy a storefront and then have 12 drums in it? How exactly <laughs> <did> that happen? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, if I tried to start a store like Rhythm Traders is today, like if I tried to start that today, um, you know, paying like, you know, $8,000 a month in rent and having, mm. you know, $150,000 in inventory and having four employees and teachers and like all, all this overhead, um, there's no way I could, I could do it. But, uh, you know, this is, uh, this was when I was young and um, I had no reason not to try and I, I, I figured well I might as well I can't I can't really fail so I found a little itsy bitsy storefront by Powell's books it was right on Burnside which is kind of a, a busy street and there's a whole bunch of little storefronts um, right now they're next to sizzle pie if you know where that is so mm-hmm. Um, and so I found this little storefront for 350 a month. And interestingly enough, that was about what I was paying for my apartment in town. And, um, and so I was engaged and, and, uh, and so talking with my girlfriend and, uh, I said, Hey, so I am, uh, <laughs> thinking of starting a drum store. And, um, she's like, no, I totally get that. That's your passion. I can picture you doing that. And, I'm like, you know, I, I told my friends back in, in, in Ghana that I would help market their drums, but I mean, I could, I, I probably can't do this forever. You know, I could maybe, you know, see myself doing this for a year or two. And she said, yeah. And I said, and I mean, I don't have any money, um, but uh, I found this little storefront. And then she kind of finished my sentence. She said, yeah, that's fine. And then if we don't do well financially or you're not able to sell those those drums we could actually move into the 350 dollars a month hip storefront right on burnside and have the hippest place in town and so that's what we did is i i just leased it you know um and put my 12 drums in there along with some leather bags and some jewelry and trade beads and incense and 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 uh some other stuff but the plan was um hey i'm gonna give this a shot um, but if I'm not embraced by the community or if it, this just isn't working out, um, then I can actually move into this storefront for the rest of my lease. Um, that never happened, though. Um, everything took off. Hmm. So do you remember who you sold those drums to? Yeah, it was fascinating. So, um, I mean, I had studied with Oboe Addy uh, before I went, and I studied with another gentleman, uh, Niardi Aloti. Mm-hmm. And so when I went to Ghana, I actually stayed with Niardi's family and then hung out with like Oboe's um, nieces and nephews and and, um, and his brother, Mustafa Tete Adi. Um, and so, you know, uh, I had all these Ghanaian connections, but I was always curious, like, okay, in Africa, you know, hanging out with my um, drum, drum carver, um, uh, brothers and sisters, uh, you know, that's, that's one thing, but I thought, how are people going to respond to a white dude coming into Portland and selling African drums? And that was a big unknown. Um, I, I didn't know if the Ghanaians who were here would feel threatened because some of them did, um, you know, buy and sell drums sort of on the side. And I didn't know how I would be perceived by the African American community. But Diana, you were you were asking who my first customers were. Correct. Um, it was the Ghanaians. So uh, Pawnee Addy and Chata 
uh, and Niardi were like, you know, three of the first people to buy my drums. And so um, some of those guys, like I remember Pawnee Addy was teaching workshops in Bend, but he didn't have any drums for his workshops. And so he's, he's like, Brad, can I bring eight drums to Bend and then use them for this workshop? And then if I sell them, then I'll collect the money and then you can just, you know, pay me a finder's fee or a, a commission. And I thought, oh, that's exactly what the uh, what the carvers in Ghana are doing for me. So of course I'll do it for you because we're all in the same boat together. And so what kept me alive for like the the first six months um, and 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 helped me pay for my 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 overhead and my rent and everything was the fact that Ghanaians in town were my biggest supporters. Nice, wow. But. Um, don't we want to talk about some Brazilian stuff, you guys? We'll get, we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> so, okay. so when you opened your store, it was originally called African Rhythm Traders? Exactly. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I, I opened it sort of as an extension of my personal interest in African drumming and as a way to support all the people back in Ghana who had supported me and as a way to sort of bring awareness to their drumming and dance traditions and, um, you know, their carving traditions and everything else. So I thought it was a pretty nifty little, little name because it was called African Rhythm Traders. And then on the sign, I sort of stacked it up. African was the first word and then the next one, rhythm and then traders. And then I highlighted the first letter of each word, A-R-T, because I figured, yeah, this is art. Um, and so uh, a lot of people still remember the the African Rhythm Traders days, and they 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 refer it as uh, to to it as art or or ART. Um, it's always fun for me when someone remembers that that very first storefront on Burnside because we've had four. I mean, it's, we stayed yeah. there for for three or four years, and then we moved across the river to um, a place a little bit bigger um, on um, Broadway. Ninth and Broadway, and that's when we started like selling dunebecks and tablas and congas, and um, we just started sort of branching out. and And uh, I carried hundreds of recordings back then too, because I was always thinking, well, gosh, you walk into a music store and they don't sell records or CDs or whatever. Like, isn't that strange? Because they're they're selling music. Shouldn't they um, have? Uh, um, uh, something to listen to so that customers when they buy a drum they can they, they can hear what a great player sounds like and so uh, I had these crazy philosophies and so um, I didn't have a single drum set or a cymbal uh, in that storefront but I had um, a lot of drums a lot of goat skins and rope and um, uh, drum making supplies and we had classes down there Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a bunch of recordings because I thought, how can I ethically sell an instrument if I can't help people or point them in the right direction for resources to listen to and to emulate um, and, and, and people to study with? And so, um, yeah, it was kind of a fun little uh, mix of, of drumming love. And then, uh, and then we moved another time um, about four blocks away to Fourth and Broadway, and that's when we started carrying cymbals and drum sets, and uh, hiring more people, and we just sort of expanded. Um, uh, we can segue into this, but uh, I, I I had a lesson room there, and so that's uh, when I when I first became familiar really with the Lions of Batucada, which was one of the very first uh, sort of Rio style samba groups in Portland. Is 
um, they practiced in my practice room every Saturday, and it was called the Saturday Samba School. And over time, that became the training ground for that group, because I can't tell you how many dozens of members uh, from the Lions started off um, at the Saturday Samba School at Rhythm Traders, and then got to a certain point where they could hang on a certain drum, and then they would go to the center space where the rehearsals were, um, and then they, they would sort of slowly... Um, work their way into the group. And, and it sort of worked that way for years where um, the Saturday Samba School was almost like an apprenticing ground for the other Samba groups in town. Um, but uh, so that was the third location. And then uh, this is interesting. So uh, I don't know, right around 2008, um, I was kind of a, a victim of my own success because the the uh, storefront that I had at the time I was still leasing. Um, the landlord wanted to like quadruple my rent, and it was already turning into, for 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 lack of a better term, cell phone row because we had like a cricket next to us and a a, a, a T Mobile and an AT and T, and he realized that if he booted me, um, he could quadruple the rent. So so he did quadruple the rent and so i'm like okay well failure is not an option i love my shop but i can't afford that so um this is this is actually right in the middle of the housing bubble and so it hit residential first and then it hit commercial uh so another long story short is um i went to grab a hot dog on mlk <laughs> just to like you know drown my sorrows in hot dogs and uh so i'm 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 eating my chicago dog with the bright green relish and i look across the street and um it was almost like an epiphany like there was a dry cleaners and it said for sale and again this is during the recession when um Developers had been buying land to build condos, but that came to a grinding halt, and they started um, they started losing those properties and going bankrupt. And I went from leasing and being taken advantage of. I was able to buy this like five thousand square foot building um, for the cost of the land, essentially, because that's all it was worth to anyone at that point was just land, because most people were gonna. Um, you know, tear it down and build condos or whatever. So I uh, put my financing gears in motion and, and, and got a, a, a SBA loan from the, the government. It's a small business administration. And then there's local programs like through um, PDC, which is now called Prosper Portland. That gave me a bunch of money for the renovation and they gave me a free architect and they, they, they gave wow. me $40,000 worth of new windows uh, as part of a storefront improvement. And so me, the little guy who started off in a village with um, a used $70 <laughs> truck battery, I was able to buy this property. And then that's when the business really got, you know, kind of kind of big because we took on pretty much every major drum line um, and... Uh, and so, yeah, um, yeah. If you flash forward to today, um, uh, yeah, I have uh, it's about four to five thousand square feet of, of drums. I have uh, three lesson studios. We have djembe, conga, and samba workshops. We bring in uh, master players from all over the world. Um, I mean, just today, I literally uh, went down to the shop at eight a.m. and took delivery of a twenty-foot container from from Thailand. 
of drums. And so I'm still doing what I did when I was in my 20s, but maybe on a larger scale because I'll get a container every year from Thailand and one from China. And I still import directly from, um, it's not Ghana so much anymore because the djembe really gained in popularity. And so we, we import directly from Guinea. Um, and uh, I have symbols made in Turkey. Um, Diana knows that. So I, uh, I, I go to Istanbul every year or two and visit the symbol factories and brings symbols back. So in a way, I'm still doing what I did when I was in my 20s, but it's just like a little bit broader. And um, we, we uh, uh, about a decade ago, we, we dropped the African part because we were so much more. We, and, and, and so that's why today we're rhythm traders. And interestingly enough, I mean, a lot of the the um, professional players in town or the kids who come in for their lessons, are the people who play drum set or maybe they're uh, uh, in a high school drum line. I mean, a lot of them don't know what my passion is and a lot of them don't don't know where rhythm traders came from. They just think, oh, you know, it's the pro the, the pro drum shop in town. Um, but uh, my true passion, of course, is getting on a plane and learning about the cultural contexts um, with, uh, with, with drumming. And, um, I mean, for me in, an ideal vacation is going to Cuba and, um, you know, uh, hanging out with the Bata drummers and going to Santeria ceremonies and playing Roomba on the streets. And so it doesn't really matter where I go, but like, that's, that's what I love. So I feel like I sell drums so that I'm able to do what I really like, which is I like learning. I like sharing. Um, and I like traveling and seeing how other people live. And, uh, you know, I've been doing that, uh, rhythm traders, actually, if you do the math. So we started in 1992, uh, we're 25 years now. And so wow. I've been, I've been, I've been doing that for a, a quarter of a century and still loving it. Dude, that's, that's awesome. <laughs> I'm so happy for you. Like you, that's just, you've like turned your passion into like something super awesome. And I mean, a great resource for people too. I mean, it's a wonderful place. Do you, would you say that your, like most of your business comes from drum set players or from, or like, you know, world, I guess I don't like using that word world production, gotcha. but you know, like, you know, other style. Yeah. So, um, if you look at like olive drummers as like a big pizza, um, like Brazilian is like a little teeny, teeny slice. And then maybe Afro-Cuban music is maybe a slightly larger slice, just in, in terms of people's awareness, mm -hmm. the instruments that are available, the teachers. Um, and then, um, you know, and then uh, drumline, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, marching yeah. bands and, right. and uh, drum corps is maybe a slightly larger slice, but still in the scheme of things, pretty small. Um, and, uh, and then, um, yeah, then you have like electronic percussion is maybe a little bit bigger of a slice, but, um, yeah, I would say probably, um, half of our sales are combo related and that's what mm. we call like drum sets and cymbals and all the accessories. And then, um, we're actually known nationally, um, just as being the world percussion guys and we have a lot of small percussion. So like... For example, in our cowbell section, you know, most most music stores might have four cowbells and they wouldn't even know what they're called, right? I almost said that. Yeah, your guys have like a ton of cowbells. So we have we have the wall <laughs> of cowbells. And so 
we probably have like 50 different ones and we know about them like oh that that's that's a cha-cha bell that's a mambo bell that's that's a, a salsa that's a that, that's a timbali bell um, that's a handheld bongo bell that's an agogo that's a gankogui um, that's a dunum bell we have all these and so um and so we're sort of known for that and so uh so interestingly enough you know in the store yeah drum sets probably um, and related stuff account for about half of the sales, and then the world percussion makes up the other half. So basically all the world percussion combined. But interestingly enough, online, people like um, still sort of know us you know, by our specialty. And so online, we sell very little combo stuff, and um, it's all world percussion. And mm-hmm. every day I sell like, you know, goat skins and djembes and um, drum building supplies. Um, and so, uh, and so, yeah, um, we sort of do it all. Um, uh, you know, this is sort of, uh, I'll explain why. Um, so when I started selling world percussion and African drums in the early 90s, I was kind of early on the scene. You know, I did it because I believed in it and I personally wanted to do it and I had personal connections and friends. Um, but it hadn't become like a big thing nationally. But just a couple years later, like by 1995, um, you know, regular ma and pa music stores are starting to get their first djembes and cajones. And so all of a sudden, something that I had like almost a monopoly on for a couple years, like now it's becoming more mainstream. And then it happened more and more. We're like every drum set or sorry, um, every drum store in America or every drum department in America had congas, bongos, timbales, djembes, dumbaks, um, darbukas, and and um, borons and tars, and so uh, we couldn't sort of compete with them just by having more. And so I truly believe that if I had stayed just only focused on world percussion, and and if um, uh, like I was um, maybe ten ten years ago. I don't think I would be around talking to you guys today because right. other stores started selling what I was doing. And so my 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 means for survival was really just to diversify. Um, and so that's why you walk in the shop now and there's everything. Um, and so we're highly specialized. Yeah, I mean, I have two refrigerators in the basement with like a thousand goat skins. <laughs> <laughs> and we sell those every day. Um, and so... That's helped me, um, you know, stay in business for sure. And uh, the other thing, and again, this is sort of like my own philosophy or whatever, but like it used to be that, uh, you know, drum sets and cymbals were found in, you know, regular sort of, um, for lack of a better term, just sort of like band and orchestra stores. Um, But you didn't see hand drums there. And then you sometimes would walk in in an import shop, and there were a few of them in the 90s. One was called Imba Imports, and then um, oh, there's a, there was another one on 23rd, and I forget what that was called. But like they would have African drums. Um, and so you found those in import shops. And then, But if you wanted recordings, then you went to Music Millennium, and you went to a record store. And then if you wanted incense, you would go to an incense store. And so I always thought, like, that's so odd that, like, all those things um, you have to go to different stores for because music is music and drumming is drumming. Um, and so for me, it was really kind of natural, um, uh, you know, after a, a few years in the business to sort of diversify and um, and try to 
um, try to bake that whole pizza pie that, that, that I was talking about earlier and, and try to carry everything because there's, there's no inherent reason why drum set guys are different from samba players or rumberos or jimbefulas. Um, and there's no reason that the drums need to be separated because uh, a lot of the, the, the routes actually lead back to West Africa. You know, if you look at bata drumming in Cuba or rumba from Cuba or American jazz, um, you know, candomblé in Brazil, samba, um, a lot of that stuff, uh, you know, you can, you can trace back to um, Nigeria or other countries there. And so, uh, so I always thought um, it's kind of crazy that, you, that, that no one's really like brought it all together. Mm-hmm. And um, remember, I started drumming when I was eight and that was drum set stuff. And so I did drum set all through high school and, and college before I even discovered the world percussion. So for me, it was entirely natural to have everything under one roof. So that's Rhythm Traders in a nutshell. Cool. Did I answer your question? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't even know what question that was. I just started talking. <laughs> so are you still in contact with those um, with those um, drum makers that you worked with way back when? Um, yes and no. Um, it's interesting because uh, I just got in, an email from... S- Susan Addy just yesterday uh, asking um, if I had some more Ghanaian Pon Logo drums and it set me on a on, on a deja vu because that's what I was doing 25 years ago when I started my shop is I had ironically I had the African connections and then I would sell to the Ghanaians and then when whenever they were teaching at a school and the school wanted to purchase some like you know early on we sold um, we sold a fleet of drums to Lewis and Clark College um and uh that's what we did so so interestingly enough i'm still doing that but um yeah it's 25 years later and quite honestly i have lost contact with um with those original drum carvers and part of it is just supply and 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 demand because by about 1995 the djembe is really spreading to the west coast um and uh you know teachers like mamadi keita and famadu konate are starting to travel around and teach. And so, um, and so a lot of drummers sort of became Guinea crazed and, and, and were traveling to, you know, the, uh, the former Manding empire in, um, Guinea and Mali to study with, with, with drummers there. And so even though we had lots of Ghanaian drums, um, uh, people stopped buying them. And then, uh, and then the djembe business took off for us. So much so that um, there were there were days again in, in the in the 90s when we would bring in 40 foot shipping containers from Ivory Coast that would be be packed with like 800 drums, and that was maybe a six month supply because we would wow. sell to you know we would sell to drum makers and facilitators, schools on the East Coast. Someone in Girdwood, Alaska, would like buy a bunch and was and that 100 you, goat skins. <laughs> Did you no, live in Girdwood, Alaska? No, because know. we had customers there, um, and so uh, and so yeah, um, and and so uh, this is kind of a nice segue, just like um, you know talking about trends and and stuff. I mean, the interesting thing about my position and working at a, a drum shop is um, I can sort of see trends and see things ebb and flow. So. Um, in Portland, the Ghanaian wave was the first wave here because in the late 70s, you had Oboe Addy, who like literally 
was the first African to show up and start playing um, and and teaching. And then, uh, yeah, he's teaching at Lewis and Clark College when I end up there, and he's doing young audiences. And probably almost every Portland school child has seen oboe mm-hmm. play at an assembly. And so that's 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 what he did for for years. So that was kind of the first wave and our, uh, as Portlanders, our first introduction maybe to world music. Um, but then, uh, then came the Guinea wave and all the, um, uh, the, the interest in djembe and dununes. Um, and then uh, we had dance classes at Dishman Community Center and, um, and we had the Northwest African American Ballet and people like Bruce Smith and Katone Lyles who are um, teaching in the community and spreading that information. And so uh, there was a whole sort of, yeah, um, uh, djembe learning curve for all of us. And then that sort of leveled off right about the time the Buena Vista Social Club (laughs) (laughs) came around. And then those guys started touring and people started going to Cuba. And then it was all about salsa and rumba and all these cute guys in the Buena Vista Social Club. And so there was a huge Afro-Cuban movement about this at the same time. And, you know, part of this is regional, too, because what happens in Brooklyn might be different from what happens in San Diego, which might be different from Austin and, of course, different from Portland, Oregon. But for us, uh, definitely the the Ghanaian uh, was maybe one of the first waves and then Jimbe and then Afro-Cuban. And then I would say probably Brazil, because some of the people who were already drummers in our community, like Brian Davis and Derek Reith and Richie Goldstein and um, Toby Manthe, uh, who were sort of came to Portland as drummers and sort of were introduced to the Afro-Cuban first. Well, they started a study group in in, in Derek's living room um, off of about 15th and Fremont, um, along with uh, with a guy named Tyrone, who was early on the scene. And again, this is like mid-90s. And there weren't really teachers back then, and there wasn't a lot of... Um, you know, there weren't DVDs and there wasn't a lot of instructional material. So a lot of these uh, drummers like who I just, just mentioned um, formed study groups. And so the next Brazilian wave really came out of Derek's living room um, uh, from a group of people who wanted to hear all of the drum voices so that they could hear and experience what the complete rhythm is like because you needed to have a go-go bells and caixas and agbes and surdos and hepanikis and all of the instruments, uh, high and low pitch, playing different roles. Um, and so uh, the Brazilian was probably the next wave. And then I've seen other ones come too. Like right now in the shop, we sell a cajon every single day. So I have mm. a wall of cajons. We sell hundreds of them every year. Because um, that is a drum. Um, it's not too expensive. So congas tend to, tend to, to, to cost a, a little bit more, but you can get a cajon for somewhere between $99 and two or $300 for a really nice inlaid cajon from Peru or something. And you can so use it as furniture too. You can sit down. <laughs> yeah. Um, you, you can, you can use it for all kinds of stuff. And, uh, and so cajones are inexpensive. They're also very accessible because you can just walk up to, or sorry, sit down on one and just start playing. And gosh darn, it sounds pretty good. You can get the bass and you can get the slap and you can get all these, these, these different sounds. And also they're, 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 they're quieter than, let's say, a hepaniki. Hello. 
Um, <laughs> and so, <laughs> um, and so if a drummer's playing in a restaurant or like, you know, doing, um, you know, playing, uh, in a bar or brunch or something like that, where they're supposed to blend more, um, the, the cajon's going to be a drum that's going to blend better. And so if you add all that stuff up, just, um, you know, affordability, accessibility, um, the ease of playing, um, uh, you know, in a way it's sort of, one could argue it's been, it, it's kind of like a dumbed down drum in that the people who buy them often don't care uh, where it's made or what the tradition is, whether it's Cuba, um, Southern Spain, um, Peru, or somewhere else. And a lot of them don't ever seek out a teacher, but I'm on the other side of it. And I think, you know what, the more drums out there, the merrier. And if this drum is accessible to people and makes people want to sit down and play with someone who maybe, maybe they're playing guitar or flute or singing and they can make music from day one. Terrific. So it's um, a gateway drum. It's a gateway drum. It, 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 it absolutely is. And, uh, so yeah, that was sort of my long rambling answer to, um, you know, uh, no, we're not working with the same people in Ghana that we started off because things sort of move in cycles. Um, but the reason that I um, brought in a container from Thailand this morning, um, you know, packed with about 100 or 200 cajones, is uh, that's where a lot of Latin instruments are actually made. So companies like Minel, Toka, Pearl, LP gone bops. Um, I mean, people in the industry know this, but a, a lot of your listeners may not know that all of those companies, the, their, uh, the, most of their instruments are made in Thailand. Hmm. Um, and, and there's reasons for that too. I mean, we've had the trade embargo with, with Cuba since the early sixties. And so you couldn't get Cuban instruments from Cuba. And so the uh, early companies, um, discovered Thailand and there's lots of stories about that too. But that's where um, the instrument making for a lot of the Latin drums has taken place. And interestingly enough, the technology has gotten better. And so over there, um, they have like two uh, double staved congas that don't crack like the old gonbops. And, um, you know, they have comfort curve rims that don't hurt your hands like the old uh, like the old congas um, and the machining and the. Uh, tunability and the skins and a lot of that stuff is just um more um more uniform and and the quality's better so one of the things that totally surprised me the first time that i went to, to cuba in um like around 2002 because i went there thinking ah, i'm gonna find a way to bring back cuban bata drums or something like i'll I'll like sh um, ship them to Mexico and then and then put Echo in Mexico stickers on <laughs> and then bring them across the border. I had this elaborate plan um, and I found some instruments there, but it turns out that the Cubans sought after the LP, LP and ones, the yeah. Toka and all the ones made in Thailand. And so that changed my thinking because, you know, I thought at first like, well, gosh, you know, here's Thailand like ripping off um these latin instruments and then um you know and and maybe sort of in uh in the process taking something from the cubans but it wasn't that at all the 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 cubans actually uh, preferred the thailand made drums because they sounded better they looked better they didn't crack they were more uniform the drums were the same height the quality control was better if they busted ahead they could they could they could get a replacement and so all the top bands um 
uh, Inihei Labanda and Climax and Isak Delgado and, and all these guys, they're all playing LP and Toka. It, why is it Thailand rather than China? It seems like, you know, everything else in the States is made in China. Why is it Thailand? Do you know? Um, I mean, there's lots of stories. Uh, the founder of LP, Martin Cohen, um, uh, I think he traveled to Thailand early on and found someone who was making like cutting boards and bowls and asked them like, Hey, like, here's a set of bongos. You think you guys can make this? And, um, and so he was one of the early pioneers, um, who, who, uh, like took a factory down there that was making other stuff. And then they started producing Latin instruments. So hmm. again, when, when Martin Cohen founded Latin percussion in Garfield, New Jersey, I think it was Garfield, um, you know, in the seventies, he was making, um, bongos and things, um, out of fiberglass, like in his own basement and selling to a lot of the Puerto Ricans in the New York scene. And then that grew and he became the cat and he needed to, he needed to find, um, another way to get instruments, um, on a larger scale. And so he was one of the, the, the early ones. Um, interestingly enough, uh, the, the German company, uh, uh, Meinl, uh, Roland Meinl, uh, went over there about the same time, um, and, and did a similar thing. And so even though we think of LP as sort of being the instigator with, uh, with, with Latin percussion in the States, I mean, Meinl was also early on the scene and they're a dominant player today too. Seems like... Oh, and so, um, uh, yeah, just, so, uh, so that's why, like, um, I think Thailand was there. I mean, there there are other places where drums come from. I mean, drums do come from, like there's a, uh, a lot of the, the djembes, we call them Bali djembes because they come from Indonesia. They come from Bali, uh, even though they're, they're, they're African style djembes. And so, and then you have drum sets and, and things. A lot of those are made in, in China right now, um, Courtney. And so you're, you're correct, but um, it's almost like certain countries have, I don't know in in institutional knowledge and so for mm -hmm. some reason in thailand because they, they've been doing it since the 70s or whatever um you know there are um uh you know instrument designers and workers who know what they're doing and so um i i i, I go to the trade shows every year um and so i um i see the chinese manufacturers and and yeah they have congas and cajones and bongos and stuff at their booths, but um, they're they're pretty poor. Like they don't even know how to tune them, and they don't look right or sound right, and the materials are poor because they're trying to learn something that they've been doing um, in other countries for a long time. But if you go to the booths that that carry stuff from Thailand, it's killer. And if you go to the booths that's selling Bali djembes, it's killer. And if you go to like you know, um, I went to a drum factory uh, just outside of Beijing over spring break. Um, it was a factory that manufactures drums for us. And I thought, OK, well, this will be fun because I love seeing how instruments are made. And so during my tour, I saw Yamaha stage custom birch drums being made in the same factory. And so I asked them, I'm like, oh, you guys make Yamaha stuff, too? And they're like, oh, yeah. So they make Yamaha and D-Drum and wait for it, the biggest player rhythm traders <laughs> and, um, and uh and so th uh that stuff comes out of china and so keep in mind courtney i mean china really has only um uh, really opened up uh, in terms of business and then even culturally and with tourism and stuff it's, it's really only opened up in the last decade and so 
Um, yeah, the labor there is definitely less expensive than in other Asian countries. And so I think they will continue to innovate and grow, of course. Um, you know, just like, you know, more and more stuff is made in China. Um, and so that might be something moving forward. But at this point, um, what I've seen with my own eyes is uh, like uh, they do more of the combo stuff, um, you know, more of the technical stuff stands and clamps and hardware and drum sets and drum line stuff and that kind of related thing. Gotcha. Yeah. I think a friend of ours, I think Jimmy was telling us, Courtney, that um, the group in Beijing was having their samba percussion made there in Beijing, right? Wasn't he saying that? I don't, wow. I don't remember. I believe he did. Sorry, Jimmy. It remember. very well could be. Um, I mean, they definitely have um, factories there that make all of, like they make djembe's, but they're crappy, and they make um, samba instruments. And I haven't seen any that I would feel comfortable importing, if that's maybe a nice way to put it. Um, and so, uh, but um, I don't doubt that they have them there for sure. Gotcha. <clears throat> any other questions, ladies? <laughs> oh, we have a lot. <laughs> we have a ton of. It questions. just got so quiet there for a second. It's like wah wah wah. Just listening. Oh, I mean, yeah. it, I don't know. So it's... much to take in. Yeah. <laughs> so, Brad, what you told us that you've been drumming. What what kind of drumming have you been doing over the years? What are some of your favorites? Well, the cool thing is when I describe myself to other people, I say I'm sort of like a C average in in all styles. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that's one of the problems when you sit. Um, where I sit is I'm so interested in different drumming traditions that it's hard for me to focus on just one. And so kind of like the, the evolution of my business, um, you know, I've become interested at different aspects of drumming at different times. So, um, you know, I played drum set um, all through college. I, you know, I had rock bands and played in jazz bands and, and I, you know, I know how to tune a timpani and, and read orchestral snare music and all that. So, uh, that's sort of where I came from. And then um, I went to Ghana. And then among other things, while I was there, of course, I was drumming. And so I learned how to play Pan Logo and Agbaja and all these different rhythms down there. Um, and then I became interested in the djembe. And so I went to Conakry and studied with um, arguably um, the, the the best living djembe player in the world, Mamadi Keita. Mm -hmm. um, and enjoyed it so much. I went back and studied with him um, another time. And uh, uh, I used to bring him to Portland for these epic workshops. And he'd stay at my house and I would parlay the Francais <laughs> and uh, learn about about drums from, um, you know, one of these guys who was a real pioneer, um, um, you know, with the djembe. Him and Famadou Konate really were. So, uh, you know, I still... Um, uh, I still sort of am interested in new things and I keep on learning. And so, um, you know, uh, at that point I was playing for dance classes in town and stuff. So, you know, I got to the point where I was good enough to hold down my part and I could play for classes um, and I was in different groups and, and things. And then the Cuba bug hit me. And so I had to go to Cuba. I was so interested in everything, salsa and folkloric um, drumming. So uh, I ended up going on a study abroad trip with Chuck Silverman back in the day. R.I.P. And uh, yeah, no, I love Chuck. Um, he 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 taught taught us so much, and um, 
he was so well loved and respected in Cuba that that's, that uh, that was one of the reasons that I enjoyed working with him was just seeing how much he did on that side of the equation by like getting those those dudes endorsement deals and mm-hmm. um, uh, having them teach our classes so that they could pick up some some hard currency. But uh, anyway, and so begin like uh, began about um, six or eight years of me studying and traveling to Cuba, and then I played um, for you know seven or eight years with Malau de Cuba, um, Virginia Lopez's group here in town. So I played timbales with her, um, and so that was sort of my um, uh, my my, my Afro Cuban um, interest and. I don't want to say these are phases, um, but it's like uh, I, I I do it and try to get as deep into it as I can um, culturally as well, you know, by traveling there and playing with groups. And um, but uh, but then when I'm doing something like that, then it takes my, my my eye off the ball and maybe I'm not playing djembe as much or maybe I'm not practicing my drum set as much. Um, and then recently, and uh, within the last few years, lo and behold, I discovered <laughs> Maraca too. Woohoo! <laughs> and that's totally fun. Um, and so um, I am uh, um, I'm a, a, a member of Maraca Two PDX, mm-hmm. and uh, love uh, playing and performing with with those guys. We do um, street fairs and um, parades, and we just. Uh, Recently played for the beginning of Portland's famous World Naked Bike Ride a couple days ago. Um, And so that's terrific. And um, you're probably wondering like, okay, Brad, I see a pattern. You you get interested in drumming, you start drumming, and then you end up traveling there. So have I ever been to, to Brazil? No. But um, neither I'm have we, at, though, Brad. So there you well, go. <laughs> well, then, hey, but I think that's all going to change well. because I'm looking to hopefully go... Um, in January or February, and because um, I feel like if I have a store, I have a cultural responsibility to my customers to know about the drums that I sell. Period. And you can write and it off. <laughs> it makes it a little bit cheaper. Yeah, I know yeah, it's yeah. great. Does this I mean, mean can you're going you to start selling like, Alfias? Are you going to start selling Alfias, Brad? Well, if I can write the trip off, yeah. There you go. <laughs> um, nice. So, uh, so. Yeah, so so I'm doing the the uh, Maraca two and samba thing now, and loving every second of it. And I can't wait to go to Brazil and study and learn more, and bring teachers back here, maybe bring instruments back here, because that's what I've been doing for 25 years. That's what I love. Um, and you know, my business is so much more than just like selling bongo drums out of a storefront. Um, it's uh, it's a world of education and responsibility and connections. And um, although I like going to new places, I also like going back and revisiting older places. Um, so, yeah, you guys sort of um, uh, started off by asking me um, what types of drumming um, I like and, and what my experience is. So it's kind of the whole gamut. Um, and I also play uh, snare drum in a New Orleans style brass band. Um, and so all this stuff is, is, is great. Um, I would definitely not call myself a professional musician. I mean, I'm a drum shop owner who's been a lifelong drummer, and I'm a C average in all styles. Because if you called me tomorrow uh, for a gig with the uh, Maraca Two group, or with the brass band group, or for a djembe class, or 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 like you know swinging with like a small jazz combo, I could do it. I wouldn't be awesome, but I could do it. 
this this uh you're talking about going to brazil and bringing back teachers and things like that leads me to a question what happened to the workshop room where you guys would lead clinics it's it's full of instruments now can you move those out and have a workshop are you kind of done with that with that now Uh aha man well, um, so yeah, uh, those of you who don't know what we're talking about, we had a community lesson room, which we had, do- which we had dedicated to one of our like lifelong drumming buddies who passed away, Richie Goldstein. And, uh, and so in his memory, we, um, we always wanted to have sort of the group drumming classes there. So djembe, samba, conga, um, we, we've even had... Um, Ghanaian drumming classes and salsa dance classes, and we've we've had uh, Georgie Alabe in that space and Nino in that space, Dudu, and, um, uh, Dudu, Carlinos Pandero in that space. So it's this sort of very legendary, cool space. Um, uh, to answer your question, what happened was, I mean, we're a, a drum store, like you know, 365 days a year, and so we were only doing workshops. Um, you know, uh, you know, a handful of days in the entire year. And so the rest of the year, that room um, is just sitting there unused and we're still paying to heat it and stuff. And meanwhile, in the storefront, now we're starting to stack, like we have djembe trees just stacked. Right. And um, <laughs> and then uh, like just, just we have this uh, coral riser full of congas. It's got like, you know, 30 congas on it. Um, and then we're stacking drum sets like cordwood. And so we, we, we quite honestly sort of needed that space as showroom as the, um, as the store was growing. And so we still use that room occasionally for workshops. Like you guys might remember, uh, when we did the free beat nation kids drum camp about two or three years ago. It was the first um, one, I think, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was the, the first, um, the, and so much fun. Oh my God. Um, we did it in that space. And so, uh, so, um, uh, we still have options and we could, we could always do it, but yeah, we would have to, dr- we would have to move probably 50 drums out of there to, to, to do a workshop, but that's what that space is for. I believe deeply in education and I would love to, love to, to, to bring, um, teachers. And, um, and so, yeah, if I end up going to Bahia and Olinda, and um, you know, uh, finding teachers, it would be wonderful. It, it would be a terrific asset to be able to make relationships down there and bring people to my community, which again is something that I've always done. And I love that part of my job. Do you think Lynn is listening to this right now going, no, I don't want to move all those drums. <laughs> yes. Yeah, all my guys are like, Brad, no. <laughs> what did he just say? yeah yeah (laughs) we'll we'll talk brad i always have ideas in my head i've got something i've got Um, something coming up here well you know it sounds like you guys just sound really helpful in your voice right now so if you want to help me move (laughs) if you want to help me move 50 drums out of that room um yeah we could we could start next week for sure i have a hand truck (laughs) hey that works so brad yeah, your whole your whole family kind of drums, don't they? Well, not um, all of them, but but your sister sure no, does. No, we sort of we sort of do. We sort of accidentally all turn into drummers. So, um, which, which happened first? Did you happen first, or did Camille happen to drum first? How did that work? Well, she was born before me. Um, <laughs> but uh, 
she didn't drum till um, maybe she was 30 or something. Um, so I was the drummer in the family, um, you know, and uh, and I want to say maybe I rubbed off on her a little bit because I, I opened up a, a drum shop and then I started bringing all these African cats um, to teach. And um, and then, you know, Diana, I was just uh, before we, we started this this uh, podcast, I was just trying to think about the the uh, the early days when the lions of Batucada first formed and then I was thinking of like all these people some of them are still in the scene some of them are not um, but I mean people like yourself and Pauline Serrano and David Huerta and um, uh, Tobias and um, uh, Rod and Richie and Derek and Brian Blake. Davis all these people oh my gosh Blake yeah this is so my sister Camille, um, and this is a segue back to her. She was she was she was one of them, and so even before I was that familiar with the Lions of Batucada or um, Brazilian drumming or samba, I mean I had my drum shop, but I was probably in my djembe phase or something at that point. <laughs> uh, so then my sister started carrying around in a go-go bell in her purse, and then she'd like <laughs> so, um, <laughs> and she turned into a sambista. And one of the early things, um, Diana, you probably remember this, but like I want to say, even before Lions of Batucada became um, a legitimate ensemble, you guys used to do what we called guerrilla samba. Brad, I gotta I gotta correct you and tell you that I was I've been involved with some of the productions, but I've never like been a a lion. Okay, but. I was you were in, always in the scene, though, I for sure. I was in the scene, yes. Okay. <laughs> well, thanks for correcting me. Um, but, yeah, I, I think um, early on, Brian Davis, I remember he was one of them, and Derek and Richie um, and Tyrone, they would organize these guerrilla samba events where they would decide to meet, at, in, like, in downtown Portland at Pioneer Place at 6 p.m. on a Thursday, and then they would come in from, like, different angles <laughs> And play and march around the block and then and then right about the time that people are wondering like what is going on and the police are starting to come then they would disband and they would actually do this it was a regular thing they would do flash mobs um, and before they were popular it was this was like the original samba flash mob <laughs> um, and so back to my sister that's why she carried in a go-go bell um, in her purse <laughs> so she could just like roll in like she's just shopping at at the Nordstrom's rack, and then she'd whip out her bell, do the gorilla thing, and then disperse <laughs> like it was no one's business. Um, but uh, yeah, so my sister's a, a drummer. Um, she uh, she still um, she she does the maraca too um, with all of us. But she also plays. She she turned into a terrific conga player, and so she's in a Mexican cumbia band. She's in a ska band. <laughs> Um, so actually she's more of a performing percussionist than I am at this point. Um, and then of course, um, she got married a few years ago to Cuban percussionist Miguel Bernal, um, who's with Pink, Pink Martini now. And Miguel is, um, I actually hung out with him in Cuba and he, you know, he took me to some crazy events. You know, we went to Santeria ceremonies and and so that's the first time that I saw you know drumming actually induce a trance and drummers actually working the crowd and and they knew exactly what they were doing in terms of uh, repetition and beats per minute um, 
to uh, to induce trance. And so uh, that was another experience where I sort of learned the power of drumming itself. And so that was with Miguel Bernal. And uh, Port- Portland is so fortunate to have him in town now. And oh, yeah. so um, he's here playing, teaching, living, sharing his knowledge. And then um, I'm a super lucky recipient because he married my sister. And so... <laughs> They have these crazy Roomba parties where it almost breaks the house. They're like just dancing so hard. <laughs> In fact, Diana, you've been there. So, oh, yeah. uh, so Camille's living room now slopes and she blames <laughs> it on the Roomba. <laughs> she Roomba'd the house to death. Can you, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I love Portland, Oregon. Nice. Yeah, she's a Rock and Alfaya player too. Yeah, so I'm so lucky, um, lucky to, to to have drumming in my family and then just all the support that I've had, um, not only like in my family, um, but uh, local teachers and local players and um, uh, uh, people from all over the world and the students who come in and um, take our classes and buy the instruments and allow me to do what I am doing. So. Um, I definitely like we're we're a big huge family and I couldn't have done it without uh, each and every one of you and um, you know it definitely starts um, with my sister and with my little uh, drumming family here in Portland awesome yeah it's amazing all the connections Brad um, actually helped uh, my husband Charlie meet up with the folks at Bosphorus we went to the Bosphorus uh, factory in Istanbul and that was an adventure. <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> yeah. So um, your listeners may or may not know that the symbol, the, the modern symbol making tradition is alive and well in Turkey. And it sort of started around 1623 by a family called Zildjian. And they still about 360 years later, um, actually my math is probably screwed, but uh, they're still making symbols. But um, a lot of the craftsmen, for the past, you know, few hundred years that have been making symbols, um, you know, they've they've passed the knowledge down and they've taught their kids, who've taught their kids, who've taught their kids. So um, I went there a few years ago and, among other things, went to the Bosphorus Symbol Factory where they make some of the finest hand-hammered, handcrafted um, symbols um, in the world. And that was about a year maybe before... Diana and Charlie were thinking of going. So, yeah, I think I probably passed a couple names your way, and hopefully uh, you got into the factory and saw some cool stuff. Shout out to Emra. <laughs> oh, yeah, Emra, hey, how's it going, buddy? Yeah, those are uh, wonderful people. And, um, yeah, they are. They're great. Uh, the Bosphorus Symbol Factory, that's a whole other story. I mean, I kid you not, it's like um, it's uh, it's in a village and it's like um, it's like in a barn, right, Diana? Yeah, it's basically it has like a, barn. a it has a leaky roof. Yeah, it's like out in the middle of nowhere. We had to take a we had to take a train really far out with one of the guys that works there with um, Aaron Erhan, and um, then we had to have somebody pick us up because it was way the hell out there, and uh, then they mm-hmm. drove us in. But yeah, it was an experience. Yeah. But yeah, uh, you were talking about, um, you know, me and Rhythm Traders and just the different connections. I mean, uh, I mean, I remember a lot of all of you guys when you first came on the scene. Um, so uh, I think I first met Charlie when he was still a percussion, like a, um, a percussion major at the U of O studying under Charles Dowd. 
And I think he called Rhythm Traders because he was interested in buying some A-Way drums or something, or or he had some that that, that needed to be repaired. Right. And uh, again, this is in the in the '90s, so so this is before you guys ever moved up right, to right. Portland. But uh, no, I was buying and selling drums to the U of O. I think. Right. We went. We came to the shop on Broadway and uh, picked them up. I think. Totally. Uh-huh. Wow. Yeah. So we go way back. <laughs> Yeah, well, and then even in, um, like, uh, right around 92, some of the first people to stop in my store were, like, uh, Tobias Manthe and Pauline Serrano, who had just moved up from L.A. In fact, they stopped in the shop. They're like, hey, we just got to town, and we see that you're at the drum shop. Like, you know, what's the scene like? Where do we go? What do we do? And I remember sort of trying to get them acclimated and hooked up. And we were all trying to, like, we were all thirsty for the same thing at the same time. And this was still pretty early on where you didn't know where to get the information. And then you didn't know if the uh, if the information was correct or authentic. And so, um, uh, like, I remember the first time Derek Reith came into the shop and, and he had just gotten a red toka conga. And he wanted to find the mate to it because he was studying with some guy named Scotty Wardinsky who was teaching him. Wawanko. And then, of course, we know Scotty Wardinsky is like one of the pioneers of, of, of drumming here in, in Portland as well. And so I can uh, very vividly remember the first time I met Derek and Scotty and Brian Davis and Oboe Addy and, and all these people who all together sort of make the fabric of the Portland drumming scene. You're like the center of it all. <laughs> it's a pretty groovy place to be because I do. Um, well, like. I think, um, yeah, I, I have access to the whole thing. And um, people who know me know that, like, you'll never hear me, you know, like, talk bad about some teacher or some style of playing. Usually people talk bad about stuff like, oh, my God, I don't like that drumming from Senegal. I don't like that drumming from wherever. Well, usually it's because they don't understand it. And so, um, and so I've learned to keep my mouth shut. And even if I don't really like, let's say, singing bowls or the the um uh, hong drums or just like different you know things i still um i still appreciate it and i appreciate the fact that other people are into it um and so i'm like an equal opportunity um uh, drummer and drum enthusiast because i actually love it all and so being at the shop i mean i've seen people from our samba scene like uh bloco alegria they'll come in and a lot of them were not drummers in their previous life and then they came to drumming through samba and that's what they live and breathe and they go to uh, california brazil camp and they travel to rio they go to pagogies they celebrate birthday parties and they love it but a lot of them know very little um like a lot of them would be afraid to like you know play a snare drum or something like that and i think that's okay and so i love seeing different groups of people who are extremely passionate about their slice of the of the drumming pizza pie um but the fun thing about me is i get to um, talk all day long about people about their interests and their travels and their instruments and and um uh and so i've learned so much about it and um and uh yeah it's like it's like i'm in the epicenter of it and 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 very privileged to be there Sounds like a party. (laughs) Okay, so there's a crazy Portland bike ride going on. People are people have stereos, bikes, tutus. Oh yeah, that's the galactic. That's the intergalactic bike ride. 
Okay, so I live at 28th and Burnside, and they're outside right now, and it's a very oh, Portlandia thing. And it's very Portlandia <laughs> to be doing a podcast. Take a picture. That. Take a picture for us, and we'll post it. <laughs> um, I should. Uh, no, oh, my God, there's like a dune buggy, but it's a bicycle. <laughs> Uh, maybe they'll, they'll they'll ride by your guys' house. So anyway, they it's, they're uh, they're they're in southeast right now. That's all I can say. Interesting. So the intergalactic bike ride, yeah. Uh, okay. So Brad, you say you've played um, you know gigs, doing different things, salsa gigs, um, all kinds of gigs. What what's one of the strangest gigs that you've ever done? Um. Okay. Strange gig. Um, I mean, I've had a lot of cool gigs, that's for sure. Okay, here's one. So I'm living with Sabar drummers in Dakar, Senegal, in around awesome. 1995. And so um, we're. Um, I just found these guys who were friends of friends who I'd met back in the States. And so we were squatting, meaning like we like lived in an abandoned building without any electricity or running water and so by day we would drink high desert tea and repair the drums that had broken the night before and then every night because um, these were like the the professional sabar drummers in town um, every night we had gigs and like we would play for weddings and street parties and stuff and so the funniest thing oh (laughs) so crazy and so the one crazy thing was um, uh, someone came to us and hired us to play for a wrestling match. And so, um, and wrestling, <laughs> uh, wrestling in Senegal is its own animal. It's this huge, big thing. So it's done in a big stadium and they wear these little like loincloths and they're kind of like skinny sumo wrestlers and they ha- they have their own style and they don't use boxing gloves and um, anyway, it's like wrestling. Uh, but the funny thing was, so you had different teams that were sort of competing and wrestling, but they couldn't afford to hire like um, another group of drummers. And so they, they they hired us and then we had to split into different groups. And so then we're like facing off and, and like almost having like um, like a breakdance challenge, only it's drums. And but but like they're like they're us they're like our family and so we're like pretending to be all like crazy and angry and all this stuff because it's uh, like picture this like picture like going to a football game and there's two pet bands that are sort of facing off like oh yeah well I can do this better than you <laughs> only it's really the same pet band that's split into two and so it just the whole thing's like super comical and um, I think that was one of the strangest ones. <laughs> You had to have been there. Like, yeah, just the sabar drums and then, um, yeah, the crazy wrestling outfits. And then there were some djembe players and um, Senegalese guys with their, like, bright red Adidas track suits and everything, like, warming up on the track. (laughs) And uh, the whole thing was just, like, um, just, like, out of, like, it's not anything I could have imagined. (laughs) Now, is this where you did the crazy leg dance? Is, Is this where you learned it? Yeah, no, I um I learned the uh, crazy fake broken leg dance <laughs> from the Ghanaians because oh. um 
they have a rhythm called gome and um, it's kind of slapstick and they wear funny costumes and they do really funny things and so one of the things that they do is walk around like they have a broken leg and then everyone sort of laughs so um, uh, I can probably honestly say that that's the only dance move that I know but it's strong though it's really strong it is very strong I've seen it I bring it out you know once or twice a year Um, I do my thing people take note they're like oh my god he's really good at that and then I leave I leave people just in disbelief so they're like oh my god who was that masked man who with that broken leg dance thing and that's me so like you know for future notice um, like that's what I do but um but like samba or like this guy trying to salsa dance no people would <laughs> laugh at me well we're interviewing you about drumming not dancing brad so <laughs> oh, okay good <laughs> except for the crazy broken leg dance which, okay good um, which yeah Courtney, uh, it, you'll have to see this sometime is that what you whip it's... out during your sister's Roomba parties that's what she said start broken leg dancing <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, I would say I do whip out the broken leg dance. Um, I don't want to be mean to you guys, but it's exceedingly strong. <laughs> I'm very good at it. Okay. I'll have to. Right. Looking forward yeah. to it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Courtney, did you have a question? Are you going to teach a workshop on the broken leg dance? <laughs> no, but, um, you know, one of the things that I've always, I think, um, that's always helped me out is when I know what my limitations are, I always find someone who's qualified who can do it better. So, um, Courtney, I can find the guy who taught me the broken leg dance and I'll have him teach the class. Bring bring him in. Because you know why? It's always better to learn from the source than to learn from second or third hand uh, information. And that goes for, uh, that goes for any, uh, any drumming tradition or dance. Like, you know, you could learn it. Um, I mean, when I first opened my shop, so there were guys who studied from somebody who studied from somebody who studied under Papa Laji Kamara in New York in 1958. And so here you had like literally a lineage, uh, almost like four generations of people who trace it all back to Papa Laji Kamara. However, just like the telephone game, by the time it got uh, like 30 years later to Portland, Oregon, you know, they're playing cuckoo incorrectly. And so when I started studying with Mami Diketa, who's from the source, um, uh, we realized that like the, the arrangements we were doing for Cuckoo and uh, Manjani and some of these other rhythms were actually like Manjani was actually Soko. And and um, but it's the information just sort of got passed down and then maybe someone missed one supporting part and then that made it sound like 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 this. So that's sort of my like uh, long lecture of um, it's always good to support the artists who come from the traditions. It's always good to go there and study it yourself. It's always good to try to learn as much firsthand information so that you have direct knowledge and you can tell someone, yeah, well, when I studied with Georgie Alibay, this is what he showed us. Um, Because, uh, yeah, the more it gets transferred from someone who studied under someone who studied under someone who took a workshop at the World Rhythm Festival, um, your information may not be correct at that point. And to bring it full circle, so if you taught me the broken leg dance and then I taught it to somebody else, pretty soon Portland would be doing the broken leg dance all. Like it would be like a minor fracture dance. Like it wouldn't actually be a broken leg. A sprained. It would be like a minor fracture, like 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 a like a hairline fracture dance. Right. right. 
And we can't have that. Like, it's yeah. got to be rock solid. It's got to be completely broken. I mean, it has to be like a compound fracture with the bone sticking out. <laughs> Dance. Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> Otherwise, no go. Yeah. Right. Gotcha. Brad, what has been your happiest moment? Drumming. Drumming or being involved. Being involved. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In your store. Um, so one of the coolest things is when someone will come in the shop and tell me like, Hey, you know, you are a mentor for me. You, you turn me on to this or turn me on to that. Hmm. So, um, for example, like, like, uh, you know, uh, my buddy Rusty Nor pulled me aside recently and he, he, he said, you know, Brad, the reason that I got into drumming is because of you. And I said, no, I had no idea. I mean, you're from Seattle. And he's like, yeah, well, I went to the Seattle World Rhythm Festival and you had a booth there. And I just happened to be there walking around and I came in and you seemed like a friendly enough dude. So I asked you, what's hot on the streets? What should I listen to? I want to buy one CD. What should it be? And uh, Rusty said, so you, you, you recommended Mamadi Keita's Wasalone, which was one of his first discs. And he's like, I, I put it on in my car, it blew my mind, and I've never looked back. And so I hear stuff like that, um, and it just makes me really happy that, that I've been able to help connect people, help connect the dots. I mean, sure, it's great to um, to have a career where I can um, you know, hang around musicians and sell drums and travel, but that's sort of a, self, um, uh, a selfish pursuit if I was only thinking about myself. And so... I've always thought about others. I mean, even when I first opened up African Rhythm Traders in 1992, it was to help market the drums of my um, of my uh, teacher um, and and the drum makers from the Eastern region in Ghana. And so, what makes me the happiest um, is not even actually being a drummer, and it's not actually drumming, but it's watching other people drum and seeing smiles and seeing connections and knowing that maybe I had a a part in that. That's really nice. Is that okay? Yeah, awesome. that's really nice. Um, I do have a, an important question. Brad, what's in, your, what's in your drum bag? What's in my drum bag? Yeah. So what are your go-to go things? What are your go-to tools of the trade? Gotcha. Um, so in my car right now, I have about four things, um, and they all come in handy. So I have my tennis bag, because I love playing tennis. I have my golf clubs, because I like uh, driving <laughs> a, um, a bucket of balls after a heavy day. And then I carry my snare drum, which I use both for Maraca 2 and for the brass band gigs. And I keep my djembe there in case it happens to be a Tuesday night, so I can go to Dishman and throw down with the Guinea boys. Um, and so uh, that's what's... Uh, that's what's in the back of my car right now. And then um, in my guest bedroom here, I have a Yamaha electronic drum set. And one of the things that I really enjoy doing is, um, you know, uh, hooking my phone or MP3 player or whatever to the electronic kit and playing al along with it. And so it's a great way to, to, to practice and develop your stamina and your sense of timing, learn how not to speed up or slow down. Um, you know, one of the interesting things about playing with an ensemble, um, any ensemble, whether it's djembe, samba, uh, rumba, um, there's a natural sort of breathing in the music where um, 
Uh, it definitely speeds up and it definitely slows down and it happens all the time. And, um, you know, that's just sort of the life of the rhythm. Um, however, if you do that and you play drum set in a rock and roll band, you actually get fired because your job <laughs> is to play at 132 beats per minute and not waver. Um, and so, uh, and so uh, I still um, enjoy practicing kit and, um, um, you know, I work with a metronome and I, I, I play to recordings and stuff so I can um, hopefully still be able to play for like let's say a five minute song without increasing the tempo by, by by more than a couple beats per minute so as much as I love the brass band and the samba and all that sometimes I have to unlearn the speeding and the dragging which is inherent in a lot of those ensemble performance groups so that's those are the drums and then of course I have a stick bag and in my stick bag I'm always ready for the gig because I have timbali sticks, I have regular Vic Firth 5A wood tip drum sticks, and then it's a big enough stick bag that I have my timbali bell and cha-cha bell and jam block so I can um, uh, like mount those on a, um, a set of timbalis and play. And then I also carry like a big dunun stick if I um, show up for dance class and I end up uh, playing one of those bass drums, which we call dununs. Um, what else do I have in there? A paper and a pen and a drum key and a screwdriver. And I feel like if I just had my stick bag, I could survive if I was in the middle of a desert. Nice. As long yeah, as you have some water. That's what I got. Very good. Awesome. Okay. Brad. Yeah. I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot from you and I've known you over the past year or so. But the one thing that I learned, I think it's the most important, is uh, Diana's nickname. Can you please share with the audience Diana's nickname? Everybody knows my you name. You know, I just uh, I just wanted to take this opportunity um, to thank uh, Courtney and Dirty D <laughs> for this wonderful interview um, and for allowing me the opportunity to share um, my exciting life and um, my, uh, uh, my drum store and my interest in everything with you. And so, um, yeah, that's it. We call her Dirty D. Dirty D, done dirt cheap. That's not the song you gave Dirty D, done dirt cheap. Uh, wrong song, dirty wrong song, you guys. That's going to get stuck in someone's head, and it's all like it's going to be like Dirty D. It's going to be all over. And you know what? In 10 years, when you're doing like a new podcast, and someone's like, now tell us the origin of how that Dirty D tune sort of like <laughs> took Portland by storm, people will be like, well, it happened on June 30th, 2017, when this annoying guy, Brad, um, sung it to the tune of Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap, which was an ACDC tune. Yeah. Is that, She's pretty uh, excited about it. Does, does that answer your question, Courtney? Was <laughs> yes, that the name you. you were looking for? Yes, thank you, Brad. Okay, yeah, that's it. Yeah, thanks, Brad. <laughs> yeah, you know, you're absolutely welcome. I'm sure you're thrilled. <laughs> Well, Brad, thank you for coming on. Thank you. Yeah, for boy, that sharing. was a deal breaker. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> no, serious. Um, hey, guys, thanks so much for inviting me on the show and giving me the opportunity to talk and share with you guys. Um, I love my job. I love my drumming community. Um, I'm very blessed. I'm lucky to be able to do what I do, especially 25 years into it. Um, so, again, uh, Diana, Courtney, thanks so much. And we can uh, find you, you on the web at. 
www.rhythmtraders.com. Um, visit us. We also have Facebook. Um, we're big into drums and education. And uh, you're always yeah. at, like at NAM and all those kind of. I like airplanes, so I like going to NAM, which is our our uh, the industry's largest trade show every January. Where about a hundred thousand attendees show up, and then most of the drum manufacturers and artists who have an endorsement deals and whatnot. So that's a blast. I love it. And then, um, but Courtney, yeah, I Courtney, think we uh, should go and, and do a podcast, a live podcast. <laughs> so you would love it, but you know, uh, ladies, I have a conflict. You gotta have a ticket to get in. Uh, oh pass. well, you have connections. Yeah, um, I get like twelve of them or something. <laughs> But uh, but here's here's the thing. So January is a great time for drum shop owners to travel because it's the slowest month of the year, uh-huh. and it's cold in Portland, and we all want to get out of Dodge. Mm-hmm. And so I I'm a little bit conflicted because I want to go to Rio, and I think that would be a great time, especially to uh, hopefully attend the technical rehearsals before Carnival. Nice. But there's also the trade show, but. I have an idea. I'll give you guys my ticket to Nam, <laughs> and I'm going to go to Rio, and I'll see you guys later. See ya. Yeah, bye-bye. <laughs> have fun in L.A., ladies. Yeah. Well, at least it'll be You can do the broken broken leg dance, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be learning a lot more down here. So which exit? Tell us the exit. If people are heading south, because we have listeners in Canada and Seattle, so if you're heading south yeah. to Brazil camp, uh, take the Rosa okay, Parks Okay, so let's do a Rhythm Traders plug here. So we're, we're yeah, located yeah. At, at 3904 Northeast Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard, and that's in Portland. It's basically Northeast Portland um, on MLK right at about uh, Fremont. And so the exit you're probably going to want to take is the Rose Quarter exit, and then you just go back up MLK about 20 blocks or so. Um, Huge drum shop with, um, yeah, we have method books and recordings, instructional DVDs, electronic kits, drum sets and cymbals. Um, And then just like uh, we have samba instruments and djembes and um, lots of used gear. Earplugs. I actually buy earplugs by the box now because it gets so loud. So um, we do have earplugs and we have permanent ones too. And the canister ones that like look all funny when the Samba players uh, wear them on the gig. But sometimes you need that because Samba is a beautiful thing, but it's a loud, beautiful thing. It's a loud thing. thing. Yeah. Uh-huh. So um, yeah, come come see us in Portland. Visit us online. Um, Try dub www.rhythmtraders.com and um yeah rhythm rhythmtraining.com no uh www.rhythmtraders.com come visit us and um if there's anything i can ever do for anyone out there you guys have a question about um where to get a certain instrument or um uh where um you might learn um uh, you might find a teacher in your community or who's organizing trips abroad um, or how to repair a drum or um, or you shoot me a picture of a drum and you're like, where's this from? Um, I don't have all the answers, but 25 years into it, I have a few and um, would, would love to help all of you out with your drumming trajectory. Yes, I highly recommend you i mean i came in there with like a dull question and you guys were like well here's the here's the book contact these people like yeah that worked out well anyway all right yes highly recommended thank you 
Hey, thanks, you guys. We'll see you on the flip side. Okay. Bye-bye. Hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Brad. He's freaking awesome. If you want to learn more about him, you can check him out on the Rhythm Traders Facebook page. Also um, at www.rhythmtraders.com. Also, if you sign up for their email list, every once in a while, there is a 10% off offer, like an offer code, kind of a coupon thing. So for um, purchasing things online. So definitely get on their email list. Yes, if you're um, in the Portland area or swinging down I-5 or up I-5, definitely stop at their store because it's it's a really fun shop. <laughs> yeah. You know, I meant to say that I have purchased four surdus and three of them I got there and they were all like discounted because they were used in their classes. So, um, oh, wow. yeah, that they were kind of offloading. So if you ask, you can sometimes get some really good deals. Yep. Nice. So for shout outs this week, we have a couple. Uh, we'd like to shout out Albert Shin in LA. He's a sambista who travels all over the place. I always see him posting pictures of Rio and he was in LA doing the Samba Congress and he actually was up here um, last year and did the Pride Parade with Madaka 2 PDX and he just started listening to the podcast recently and gave us a shout out on IG and thank you Albert. And also another shout out to our friend and Portlander George Katagachliev. That's right. I pronounced your last name right, George. <laughs> <laughs> um, he a lot of times will text me in the middle when he's listening to the podcast. He'll start sending me messages like, oh, this part was funny. Or, you know, anyway, he's been a, um, a good supporter and gives us good feedback about it. But thanks, George. I, I think he's our maybe is he our only Bulgarian listener? If he's not, we know. If he's not, let us know if you're the other Bulgarian listener. <laughs> um, also, of course, we'd like to shout out everybody following us on Facebook and Instagram. Um, anyone posting, we'd love to hear from you on either of those sites to get some feedback. Yes. Also, um, send us your group's audio. If you guys... If you have a community group and you guys want to be featured on the podcast, we would love to do that. Just send us your your audio and we can put it on our intro and outro. Um, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. Please go there and give us a review and rate us. Let us know what you think about the podcast, things we can do better. If you have suggestions for guests, things like that. Um, you can find out more about our guests and find links to everything we talked about at www.thebrazilianbeat.com. You can email us, thebrazilianbeat at gmail.com. Um, Diana is tweeting it up on Twitter at Brazilian Beat One. That's the number one. Facebook Brazilian Beat Podcast. Oh, excuse me, the Brazilian Beat Podcast. And as Diana mentioned, she's on Instagram, the Brazilian Beat. Um, you can. There's a few different ways to listen to us. You can either um, stream us through our website or find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Google Play, and Player FM. Thanks for listening. 